and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. This morning, our passage from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. We'll look at help on how to have the right speech. And now, with our message this morning, is Pastor Robert Elliott. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, God used mightily in another century to pastor a church that grew rapidly through conversion growth. Rapidly. Someone in Spurgeon's church kept a log or a journal of every salvation decision that took place through the ministry of the church. We still have that journal available to us. And do you know what it shows? That of the hundreds and thousands, actually, of people who trusted Christ to be their Savior when Charles Haddon Spurgeon was pastor of the church, that 80% of the converts were led to Christ by people in the congregation. 80%. 80% of the converts were led to a personal relationship in Christ, not by Pastor Spurgeon, but by the average, ordinary, uh, wonderful, garden variety believer who was in the pew as Charles Haddon Spurgeon fed them from God's word. John R. Stott, a fine evangelical from Great Britain who is now in heaven, he said this about evangelism and churches. Stott said, quote, if evangelism is to be continual, it must be congregational. If the good evangelistic ministry that this church has known since 1951 is to carry on continually, it will have to carry on congregationally. That's you. That's the person on your left and the person on your right, yes, but it's you. When was the last time you told somebody the way of salvation? Could you make that on the top of your to-do list tomorrow? And each day this new week? Yes, you could. And so could I. And we could pray about it, and God will give us the opportunities. That's what Paul asked for. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And so we've seen so far that with Christ as our focal point, with Christ as our identity, with Christ as our life, we're new and improved, and that new and improved quality applies to prayer, that new and improved quality applies to evangelism, and last, we see new and improved talk. Or we could say chat with winsome wisdom. Look at verse six. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let me go back to five and six. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Make the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So people are unique. There are no two people on planet Earth, nor have there ever been two people on planet Earth with the same DNA. So all of us are utterly unique 
So that means proper speech toward people should be tailor-made to the person you're talking with. There are certain overarching principles about right speech, but also we must tailor make our words, our talk, to the person we're talking with. And this verse would indicate that right speech is a beautiful and a supernatural thing. And right speech should be 24-7. Let your speech always be with grace. Right speech is to be gracious. Our speech is to be full of grace. Unmerited favor. Giving the person we're talking to better than they deserve. Giving them the benefit of the doubt. Giving them forgiveness, etc. Right speech is beautiful and supernatural. Right speech is 24-7. It should always be there. Right speech is gracious. It should be with grace. And right speech should be salty. It should be seasoned, as it were, with salt. Trying to lose some weight. (laughs) And man, I like salt. (laughs) And that's an enemy of weight loss, right? I'm trying, trying to cut back. Salt just brings out the flavor of foods and snacks. But it's not good for my blood pressure and it's not good for my waistline. But this salt, your speech and my speech is good salt because it creates a thirst for Christ in the people we talk to. Right speech is like salt that's good salt because it can hold back corruption and putrefaction of other people's mouths and their lives. Ever been in a work situation where they're telling dirty, filthy jokes and you walk in and they go, oh, Bill's here. Oh, can't talk like that. Karen's here. That's great. You're salt. Inhibiting corruption, curbing putrefaction, stopping rottenness. Of course, we don't do that in an arrogant way that somehow we're superior than them, but we're saying, I'm a beggar like you are that found the bread of Jesus Christ, the living bread. Can I tell you about him? He'll fill that hole that you're cursing about at the lunch break. More, right speech is not only beautiful and supernatural and always 24-7 and gracious and salty, but it is also wise. It says in the verse, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. That is a great way to pray with your eyes open, church. When you're talking to someone who needs Christ and they make some outlandish statement that grieves God, just pray with your eyes open quietly, Lord, give me what to say. And it might just be, I don't quite know how to respond to that right now, but I'll give that some thought and get back to you. That's a good response. Right speech should be wise and right speech should be fitting and tailored to the person who has the need that you're speaking with. Think of Jesus. He was the perfect example of everything, including right speech tailored to the people he was speaking with. John 8, 7, Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Caught in adultery, law said she should be stoned to death. Jesus looks at her accusers. It says, he who is without sin, you cast the first stone at her. Right speech. Or Matthew 22, verse 21, Jesus was asked about taxes. (laughs) 
Jesus was asked about taxes, and he said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Right speech. Or John 4, verse 16, the woman at the well had seven husbands, came in the heat of the day to draw her water because she was a social pariah. She was an outcast. Even the women of her village uh, mocked her and criticized her for her adulteries. So she came in the hot part of the day to the well, and there Jesus was. By the way, he's always there when we're in need. He meets us where we are in our need. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've come with a tremendous need. He's meeting you here as this word is expounded. That's the kind of savior he is. And so this woman comes to the well at the heat of the day because she's a social outcast, and he says to her, go call your husband and come here. He knew her situation. He was putting the finger of his love and grace upon the need of her life. And as she believed in him in that interchange, she became a new creation in Christ. And she ran to the village to all the women who mocked her and put her down. And she said, could this be the Messiah? He knows everything about me. Right speech. Or after Peter made that bold prediction he would never deny Jesus, but then yet around that charcoal fire he did, Jesus told him before he denied Christ, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Fitting speech. One more. Luke 2, verse 49. Jesus said, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Foster father Joseph and biological mother Mary left him by mistake in the temple. And when they figured out what they had done, they raced back to retrieve him and they scolded him for not coming along with them and for lingering in the temple. And Jesus said, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Church, our speech should constantly be fitting, glorifying to God, helpful to the person we're speaking with. That's new, and that's improved speech. Today's Helpful Learning segment is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church's Christian Counseling Center. The center is located at 58 Collins Avenue, Nassau, Bahamas. If you would like an appointment or more information, dial 323-7000. That's 323-7000. Or email them at cccbahamas at gmail.com. And now, the Executive Director of the Christian Counseling Center, Pastor Frederick Arnett. Good morning and thank you again for having us in your homes this morning. Again in the studio with me is Deborah Arnett and uh, we were talking about the way we should respond to our children last time and one of the things that I mentioned was there are those who feel that unless we raise our voices, shout or scream, our children refuse to do what we say. So. It seemed to me that they are waiting for us to scream before they move, 
because that is what they used to walk. How do you see it? Well, as I mentioned last time, and I'll just quickly review, um, the shouting, the screaming, the ranting, the raging, it actually taps into their emotional brain. And so it produces an emotional reflex, which some people may be familiar with, and we refer to as flight, fight, freeze response. Right. So the child is responding from fear, not out of respect, not out of honor, not out of this recognition that, oh, wait, you're right. It suddenly occurred. You're right. Let me do this. But rather out of fear. And you don't want that type of relationship because fear is not an effective way to motivate people. And research has shown that it's ineffective if you want to motivate people to do something. Um, however, one of the things that I think is very important and very efficacious if you want to promote um, a healthy relationship with your child where you don't have to scream and rant and yell to get a response is important to fo foster discipline. And discipline does not start at the age of 12. Discipline starts when they're that toddler who refuses to go to bed at nine o'clock at night and they want to sit up with you and you have decided that you want them to have a bedtime of eight o'clock mm -hmm. well you can either place that child in the bed and lovingly inform them that they need to stay there or you can permit them to stay up for as long as they feel like staying up and roam about for as long as they feel like roaming about and let them have their own way the importance of fostering discipline is that you teach your children boundaries and boundaries need to be taught. Mm -hmm. And that is important for all aspects of life. That enables them to go to school and stay in their seats. Mm -hmm. That enables them to go to an environment and you can say to them, when you're at Aunt so-and-so's house, please do not touch these things or do not do these things or listen to her authority. If you don't teach your children boundaries, if you don't teach them to honor your authority, they will not honor other authorities mm -hmm. in other spaces and spares and they won't honor other boundaries that are put in place. Um, and it's also, an effective way to teach them that if they're faithful in the little things, you can ultimately begin to trust them with greater responsibilities. Mm -hmm. But it starts from when they're a tender age. You don't wait until they're five, six and can talk back to you and have a conversation about it. And you have to also understand as an adult dealing with a toddler, your authority is not a laughing matter. And one of the mistakes that I think a lot of parents make is that when their toddler responds in a very cute and seemingly funny way, they laugh. Right. And then they just don't follow through with the discipline. Right. Well, that sends a message to the child. Oh, this is how I get out of it. Right. And what the parent notices over time is that the child will persist in these behaviors of trying to be the comedian or trying to do something funny to distract and avoid the disciplinary action. And when I speak to discipline, I'm not talking about physical punishment. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about providing guidance and structure and boundaries for the child so that he or she can function well mm -hmm. in life, in relationships, and in different settings, whether you are present or not. Mm -hmm. um, to speak particularly to Christians on this issue, when you teach your children how to develop boundaries, how to have discipline in their life, you're also teaching them important lessons about how to walk in obedience with God. Right. Because there are times where God instructs individuals in their personal relationships with him to do things, and he does not sit down and provide a lengthy explanation as to why he wants them to do it. So if you build a relationship with your child where you can communicate to them, there are times mom and dad are going to tell you to do things, and I do not have the time to explain why. They will learn how to honor God in a similar way. So if the child is in the middle of the road, a car is coming, and you say, get out the road, this is not a time for a debate. Right. So... If you have a healthy relationship with them where you've taught them boundaries, where you've taught them discipline, they're going to respond and they're going to trust you mm -hmm. and they're going to obey you. Um, but if you, again, are not engaging in a lifestyle of integrity, if you are showing them that they can debate things with you um, and that there aren't specific times where they do need to just move and act in response to instructions you give them, 
then they're going to take the same approach with God and with others and other forms of authority. And remember, as I said last time, it's a little idiotic to think that you can tell your child to do as you say and not as you do. Mm -hmm. Because they will ultimately model your behavior. Right. I would dare say there is no wonder why there is little or no respect or honor for those who are in authority, like our policemen or our school teachers, or even those who are in authority in the church. Because if it's not taught from the home, by the time they start going to school or to church or wherever, they are going to bring that same action into the public. So is there any wonder why we are having such a difficult time today with our young people seemingly out of control? And not only the young, the not so young as well. Thank you very much, Deborah, and uh, we will pick up from here next time in the will of the Lord. God bless you. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com. Once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliott. I have a simple, straightforward question I want to answer today, but the answer is quite lengthy. So it may be that my answer to a simple, short question will be divided into more than one broadcast. Here's the simple question. What happens to a true Christian after death? Well, in the first place, uh, that believer's soul and spirit separate from the body. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 9. Second, the soul and the spirit go to be with Christ in heaven immediately, uh, where that soul and spirit, it would appear at least to me by inference, that they would receive an interim glorified body an interim glorified body awaiting the glorification and resurrection of their own bodies uh, at the rapture of the church. So I'm saying that I believe the scriptures teach the soul and the spirit go to be with Christ in heaven where they uh, would then apparently receive an interim glorified body. I say that because Revelation 7, 9 through 12 talks of uh, persons in heaven wearing robes And my question is, how do souls and spirits wear robes? Uh, Similarly, in that passage in Revelation 7, it talks of these souls and spirits having hands and, and voices. And it would just seem to me that there must be some kind of an interim glorified body. Number three, after a believer dies, the soul, spirit, and interim glorified body enjoy heaven until the rapture of the church event that we see taught by 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. 
at the rapture return, where those who have died and gone to be with Christ return in the air with the Savior, the interim glorified body is shed to give way or to yield to the particular believer's own original body resurrected, but now fully glorified. I see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. And then after that, the whole glorified believer, body, soul, and spirit returns to heaven with the Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. That whole glorified believer enjoys the Lord in heaven during the seven years of tribulation judgment taking place on the earth. Uh, believers are, during that time when a tribulation is on the earth, up in heaven, believers in Christ are individually evaluated by Christ with respect to motivation and the effectiveness in bringing forth the gospel in ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, and 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15, uh, talk about this judgment of evaluation. It's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Bema was the Greek term for the actual rostrum in a community where civil servants and politicians made their speeches, but also the rostrum was the place in the ancient Olympic Games where wreaths were awarded to those who performed well in athletic events. So sticking with this uh, beam on judgment seat of Christ for evaluation of believers in heaven during the time the tribulation is happening on earth, I just want to underscore that this evaluation is not a judgment with respect to sin. Uh, Romans 8.1 makes it clear that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Rather, this is a judgment with respect to reward. Uh, Christ either granting reward very graciously or withholding uh, reward. But destiny and fitness for heaven has already been settled. But the, it's the reward part of it that's evaluated during the time of the tribulation down on earth. After that comes the marriage of the Lamb. With this, it's a church event takes place in heaven. Revelation 19, verse 8 and verse 14, still with the marriage of the Lamb event taking place in heaven with the church. Philippians 3, verse 20. After that comes an event that would be easy to mix up because it's close in its name. This is, though, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place on earth, includes the Jews among those at the table, believing Jews. Uh, Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. Uh, Luke 14, verses 16 to 24. And Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. So we're still moving forward with this answer uh, chronologically. After the tribulation, Christ returns to earth in his second coming event and brings with him groups of believers and some angels. And we should note that all of those who come with Christ come unarmed. We have no arms in our hands to try to win a battle with weaponry. And who comes with Christ after the tribulation and the second coming event to earth? 
Well, church-age believers do. That's Revelation 19, verse 8. And the tribulation converts saints who trust Christ for salvation after the rapture in the tribulation. They'll be there. Revelation 7, verses 7 to 13. Also, the Old Testament believers will be resurrected and be a part of this return with Christ at his second coming. Jude, verse 14. Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. But there'll also be good angels who return at the end of the tribulation with Christ. Good angels, Matthew 25, verse 31. Still on we go. After Satan is defeated and bound, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, the rewarded believers share a part in Jesus' reign on the earth for a thousand years. In other words, part of the reward that Jesus may grant to a believer at the Bema during the tribulation time on earth, but during that evaluation time in heaven, Jesus will reward some believers. And one of the aspects of that reward will be that these believers get a delegated area of authority in Jesus Christ's kingdom on earth that lasts a thousand years. We call it the millennium. What verses teach us that? Well, Revelation 20, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, and Psalm 149, verses 5 through 9. On we go with this answer. After the millennium, there is a final battle with Satan and his team. I use quotes around team. Uh, Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. And of course, Jesus wins this battle. It's not even close. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And then there will be a sentencing judgment on all the unbelieving dead of all the ages of time. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. One of the most sobering passages in all of God's word. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Glorified believers will not be involved in the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment has nothing to do with the born again believers, has everything to do with those who are not saved from all the epochs and eras of time. Still moving on with this answer. After the great white throne judgment, the eternal state begins and it will never end. It is perfect forever and ever and ever and ever. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 tell us some of the details God wants us to know about the eternal state. So this is a long answer, but the question asked, and this is what happens to a church-age believer after death. And I'd just like to ask you all as listeners, don't we have a wonderfully adequate Bible? Don't we have a superlative can't be topped future and don't we have a powerful loving savior god 
You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.